We're reading from Mark chapter 9, verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. My uh, privilege to, to serve as an elder here at Bayless Baptist Church and also to present God's word with you today. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word that you have preserved throughout the ages uh, for our benefit and for the uh, salvation of all mankind. Lord, we ask that as uh, your word is read today that uh, you would conform our hearts to what scripture reveals. Lord, let none leave here unchanged, but we they may be under by conviction and inspiration, Lord, uh, seek to pursue Christ with our whole heart and proclaim his gospel message to our neighbors, co-workers, family, and the nations. We love you, Lord. We come to you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. Excuse me while I get my notes together. One of the purposes of Mark's gospel is to define what it looks like to follow Christ. And we desire to practice what Jesus taught, which is why Christians are also called disciples, learners, followers, students. Then we can develop into a more mature understanding of greatness and what the significant impact that has in the effectiveness of our discipleship. Now, Webster defines greatness as the quality or state of being great. That is in terms of size, skill, achievement, or power. Synonyms include excellence, preeminence, superiority, and supremacy. We see that men and women deemed to be great by society are elevated to a lofty position in the public esteem. Could be Hollywood celebrities, movers and shakers in business. Could be rock stars, politicians, or those with outstanding accomplishments. Often those who arrive at these places of prominence feel a sense of entitlement to be catered to, to be served by others. But as we will observe in today's passage, a problem appears when Christians adopt the world's view of greatness instead of a biblical view. Greatness, the problem. As our story continues in Mark 9, Jesus and his disciples have left the north country and passed through Galilee on the way to Jerusalem. When they arrived in Capernaum, Jesus asked, What were you guys talking about? As if he did not know. Now there's an awkward silence among the disciples, 
and probably a bit of shame. See, while Jesus had just earlier been speaking to them about how he would die on the cross, that he would give up his life for the sins of the world, the disciples followed up that topic with, in their mind, an equally important topic, a heated debate about which one of them would be, was going to be the most prominent when Jesus came in his kingdom, when he brought about his kingdom in totality. Scripture does not tell us the details of their discussion, their conversation, but I imagine it went something kind of like this. Probably Peter, James, or John, or maybe all three, may have bragged. Well, Jesus took us up to the mountain to see Moses and Elijah. To which Andrew could have replied, well, if it wasn't for me, Peter wouldn't even be here. Matthew might have piped up, hey, I gave up a really lucrative career to follow Jesus. And not to be outdone, Judas perhaps may have countered, well, Jesus trusts me to hold the money bag, so there. The disciples were trying to establish a pecking order. Who was going to serve whom? Who was going to get his own way. Now, being the shortest kid in class all through school, without any distinctive traits other than an overactive imagination, I grew up wondering what it would be like to be talented or popular, how cool it would be to finally rise above my peers, my classmates, to be notable, to be special, to be great. My own sin nature would egg this on, these feelings. Yeah, Larry, you should be at the top of the food chain. But that's a dangerous line of thinking. After all, was that not the implied question with which Satan tempted Eve? Don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to be great? Much about the business world revolves around this same notion of greatness. To climb the corporate ladder, even at the expense of others. That's a very real pursuit of many people. Some churches adopt a corporate model of committees and church councils and deacon boards where everyone wants to push their pet ministries or ensure that their preferences are protected. Too often, this pursuit of self-glory within the church leads to division and strife. When every Christian pursues their own agenda, seeking that their needs are being met, then the cause of Christ can be pushed aside. The mission of the church lost in the shuffle. The Apostle John wrote about one such individual in the early church. Out of 3 John, verses 9 and 10, John writes, I have written something to the church, but the Atrophies, who likes to put himself first, 
does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I'll bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who wants to, wants to and puts them out of the church. Diotrephes would no doubt have styled himself a great leader of the church. He apparently had a following. He was able to get his way. Christians who want to be great, as the world defines it, will display to some degree one of these four problems we see with Diotrephes. He loves to be first. He's filled with pride. He rejects authority. He's disruptive of unity. He's malicious gossip. He undermines the brothers and sisters. And he refuses to welcome others. He likes church just the way it is. This is when greatness becomes a problem. Being stubborn, opinionated, and rebellious does not make one great in the kingdom of God and is extremely detrimental to the church. If the disease of diatrophies runs unchecked, the church will become inward reaching instead of outward stretching. Inward reaching instead of outward stretching. Changes in new people will be seen as threats. They'll be grumbling. Our attention will be focused on pleasing ourselves instead of serving our community. And the church will suffer. It will decline. In a very dark period, some 30 years ago, Bayless experienced firsthand the devastating consequences when Christians seek to make themselves great, when they put themselves above others and contend with the pastor for the role of leadership. The church split, not over missions or doctrine, but over the question of greatness. Who was going to get their way? And I don't bring up this to air dirty laundry of the ancient past, only to illustrate how important it is that a church remain diligent in setting aside our personal preferences and striving ahead in unity for the things that really matter to Christ. This is not to say that Christians should not be ambitious, that we should not seek to do everything well and that we hope to accomplish. Quite to the contrary. Just as every coach wants to bring out the best efforts in his athletes so that the team succeeds. That every music director wants each individual musician to grow in their skill so that the orchestra entire performs at a high level. Every company wants its employees to become more proficient and so add value to the business. In like manner, if you are a professed Christian, you should pursue spiritual excellence. That's a worthy goal. We should strive for personal holiness before God. 
to be set apart for God's purposes, how we speak, how we conduct ourselves. Those are good things, laudable things, which now leads us from greatness the problem to greatness the solution. Ambition and achievement are not bad things, but the motivation which drives them can be. There exists a motive to be approved and applauded by men. We see that every day. There exists this motive to be glorified, to be served by others, to get what you want. This is the motivation that prompted the debate among the disciples. It's not uncommon. And that is why all of Jesus' talk about being persecuted and killed was so distasteful to them. Great men do not let others treat them like that. That's not how greatness works. What Jesus sets before his disciples and us is the motive for something different, something better. It is the desire to be approved and applauded by God. You see, in the kingdom of Christ, greatness is characterized by humility and service. Foreign concepts diametrically opposed to how the world treats greatness. They run counter to the world's expectations. Truly great men and women of faith do not see others as the means to further their own agendas, instead disciples of Jesus. Use their natural-born talents and their God-given spiritual gifts to, in order to better serve those around them. I ask you, how much would the gospel be advanced if Christians live for what they could do for one another in their communities in the name of Christ and not for what they could get for themselves in their own name. Now, humility can be difficult to find, be defined because we see so little of it in the culture around us. But I love C.S. Lewis's definition when he said, humility is not thinking less of ourselves but thinking of ourselves less. We can spend a great deal of time thinking less of ourselves, but then we still end up thinking about ourselves a lot. The problem with pride does not come down to whether we have a high or low opinion of ourselves, but that we dwell on ourselves too much. If I remain the center of the universe, then Jesus will be pushed aside in my life, the things that I do. In Galatians 5.13, Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Pride occurs when we are self-focused. In contrast, humility is self-forgetfulness. Humility is liberating because when we think 
about ourselves left often, then we are free to think more on the person and redemptive work of Jesus. He is worthy of that kind of attention. Humility puts us on the path of grace, whereas pride puts us on the path of opposition to God, with God. Passages like Proverbs 3.34, James 4.6, 1 Peter 5.5 tells us that God opposes the crowd, proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And as we study scripture, we know that God is undefeated when men contend with him. So that's not something we want to pursue. In humility, we adopt a servant's heart to serve others, to meet their needs. This may be a new concept to some of us. For example, what is the first thing that pops in your head when you consider the question, what's a pastor's job? What do we expect the pastor to do? Why is he here? Popular answers will likely include preaching God's word, evangelizing the community, performing weddings and funerals, going on hospital visits. These are all good things that a pastor will do. No question about it. But did you consider Ephesians 4, 11 and 12? And he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. How many of us would first think a pastor's job is to prepare me for ministry? We don't often consider that Jesus has given pastors the directive to equip his people for ministry. To teach you and me how to be servants in a way that gets the approval and the applause of God. And if you think that this is a daunting statement, remember that pastors will be held accountable for God. For how they have equipped us. Just as you and I will be accountable before God. Regarding how we have served. Is that an amen or an oh my? Too frequently, churches hire pastors to be the ministers, to serve the congregation, to make their lives comfortable and pleasant. It runs opposed to the clear biblical mandate of leaders to develop God's people into mature Christ-like laborers for the work of the gospel and for the saints to respond in service with diligence and faithfulness. That's why we are here. You see, in in God's view, the church is not a museum where polished vessels of gold and silver are polished and set on display to be admired and appreciated. And said the church is a factory, it's a training ground where raw material is refined and is hammered and is shaped into something Jesus will use to build his kingdom. If you were like me and ever wondered, 
What's the purpose? What's my purpose in life? Why am I even here? Then you've come to the right place. It is God's plan not only to make you his child through the blood of Christ, but also to give you meaningful work to do. Work that will last for time and eternity. Put that on your resume in your next job interview. But a Christian who does not serve and does not allow himself to be equipped for ministry is like a football player who puts on his pads, his cleats, his uniform, his helmet, but won't learn the playbook. A player who's content to sit on the bench, refusing the coach's call to get into the game. You've got the trappings of being part of the team, but you're not participating in the goal of the team. True Christianity is not a spectator sport. We're not called to wait on the sidelines, to cheer from the stands. We should be eager to participate in what God is doing, to actively and willingly learn how to be effective ministers of the gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter writes, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards, that is, managers, in, of God's grace in its various forms. Everybody's ministry is going to look different. How you serve is not different how he serves. But we're all called to serve. Which brings us finally to greatness, the example. Instead of pursuing what the world calls great, Jesus calls us to follow his example of what it means to great. And he does that in two ways. First, how we are to serve. And that is, like Jesus served. Jesus himself said of his mission in Matthew 20, Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. In this, Jesus demonstrated his service by dying on the cross for our sins. We can be forgiven because of his service. He paid the price that was too much for you and I. Paul expands upon this. And how we are to emulate Christ in becoming servant ourselves. In Philippians 2, verses 1 to 8, Paul writes, So if there is encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if these, things are, if these are true, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, court of, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality God with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But we're not asked to do that. But we are asked to serve. Jesus did not pursue his own glory, and neither should we. Jesus put others first, and that is the Christian's goal as well. Jesus was obedient to his father, and he waited for God to exalt him when the time was right. Likewise, we are secure in our position with Christ. We can therefore be patient and trust that God will recognize our service one day before his throne. We don't have to have it now. It will come in God's timing. And it will be better then than anything you get now. Jesus showed his followers how to serve. And he demands no less of you and me who are to carry on his work. There is honor and dignity and joy and satisfaction to be found in the service of others. Jesus teaches that greatness is not found in rank or position, but in service. Jesus makes it clear that our service is to be grounded in love and humility. In the Gospel of John 13, verses 12 to 14, after Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, which was a lowly position, when he had finished washing the feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Sometimes that service may not be especially pleasant. It will dig into your free time, your energy, maybe your wallet. But Jesus does not require us to do anything that he didn't do first and didn't do better. Not only is Jesus the example of how we are to serve, but he shows us here he is also the example of whom we are to serve. Notice in verse 37 that Jesus puts a child in their midst and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. That's the Father. While a child may be an excellent example of faith, dependence, or innocence, none of these is what Jesus is driving at here. He's not presenting the child to his disciples as a role model that they are to mimic. Rather, the child represents Jesus himself, the object of our service. Like a child, Jesus came in the world with no position, no political power, no social standing, to serve those who have no influence, who cannot advance your career, who cannot enhance your public image, who have nothing to offer you in return, is in fact to serve Jesus. Jesus. 
and the Father who sent him. Jesus illustrates this no place better than in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. It's a little lengthy, but we'll get there. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all nations, and he will separate people one from another, as shepherd, a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. Two people, two classes. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. You was, I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it, for the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked or sick, or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That sounds kind of harsh. And it is harsh. And it's serious. With sobriety should we approach the question of greatness and what my view of greatness is. See, Jesus describes two groups and there are professing Christians in each group. On his right hand are those who served one another in such a way that it was second nature to them. They were doing it while having, having to think about doing it. Selfless service was so ingrained into their routine and their lifestyle they didn't even realize they were doing it. And Jesus commends them for it. On Jesus' left hand were the pretenders. They attended church service and Bible studies and potlucks. But they did not serve. In fact, they were so desensitized to those around them that they completely overlooked their very existence. I don't see the need. They were so preoccupied with their own need, they never gave a thought to anyone else. They simply couldn't be bothered 
Jesus as Lord and Savior with their lips, but not in their hearts. Jesus condemns them for it. The authentic Christian who faithfully and sacrificially undertook their role of servant was affirmed by Jesus and so received his blessing and a place in his kingdom. The false Christians who ignored the call to serve revealed the true nature of their unrepentant heart. They were cursed by Jesus and so did not enter into his kingdom. I am convicted. I hope you are too. Now, just to be clear, salvation is through faith in Christ alone by the grace of God. We do not earn our way into heaven by works of service. I want to be clear on that. Rather, it is our service that is the result. It is the evidence of a changed heart and a changed life brought about by the blood of Christ. And a number of you are already serving. Sharing the gospel with children around the world through Operation Christmas Child. Visiting our homebound brothers and sisters. Supporting the Nepali Gospel Church and their ministry. Plugging into the ministry Firm Foundation, which tutors immigrant children in their schoolwork. You're leading small group Bible studies at church and in your homes. You're helping immigrant families get assimilated to American society through Oasis International and sharing the gospel as a process. You're ministering to our children faithfully in Bayless Kids every week. And I praise God for you. Well done. And it's just as Jesus has instructed his disciple to receive children like we would receive Christ himself. I'm glad that we are a church that welcomes children in the worship service. After Jesus had cleared the money changers out of the temple courts, we have this account in Matthew's. There's no slide for this, so I have to follow along. Matthew 21, verses 14 and 16. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, don't you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now the temple in Jerusalem was high church as it gets. And children were there praising Jesus. But we see the religious rulers, the chief priests and the scribes, they were angry over that display. It's inappropriate. It's unseemly behavior. It's a place of worship. But Jesus, for whom true worship is directed, for he is worthy, responded to them by quoting Psalm 8.2. Paraphrasing, yeah, that's okay. That pleases me. Or as Pastor Ron Shrum always said, I'd rather hear babies cry than saints snore. <laughs> Jesus leads every one of his, disciples, his followers to invest in the lives of others. 
simply because they are image bearers of God. They are potentially co-heirs with Christ. And if you do not yet have an heir of ministry, what might that look like? Give an hour of your time to someone who needs help. Write a note of encouragement to someone who's down. Call someone to pray with them over the phone. Take a meal to someone who is sick. Share a word of compassion to someone who just lost a loved one or a job or some other tragedy in their life. Bestow a deed of unmerited kindness to someone who is easily overlooked. And we should engage in these pursuits without trying to receive special recognition, always seeking ways instead to serve others that brings glory and honor to our Lord and Savior. I'd like to leave you with this thought as we close this morning. Jesus not only led by serving others, he loved by serving others. Everything good we experience is an unmerited gift from God. In fact, that is where good starts. It comes from him. Jesus does not owe us anything. He has no debts to repay. We did not earn his blessing, nor did we deserve them. But Jesus calls you and me to participate in the same service that he himself established as the standard. Whatever good we are capable of is only because Christ gives us the means. May we be found faithful in it. Serving others is the ultimate act of worship. Jesus is worthy, so I can do this. It demonstrates that we are truly his disciples, that we have learned by Jesus' example. Our humble, proof, our humble service is proof positive that we are not only devoted to our Savior, but also diligently active in the gospel-centered mission for which Jesus gave up his life. We do not merely give lip service on Sunday morning, but we back it up with our, putting our time, our treasure, our talent into kingdom-building work every day of the week. So I want to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you're a great and awesome God. And Lord, you have given us a great Savior. Lord, he is the model. He is our motivation. Lord, let us search our hearts, Lord. Send to us. Make us aware of those areas of ministry, Lord, that you have ordained for us uniquely, specifically, and individually, Lord. Not to puff up ourselves, not to make ourselves look good, but Lord, to magnify the glory of Christ, that his name may be made great, that he may be non-ignorable in our families and in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools. We love you, Lord. And we come in the name of Jesus. Amen.